This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, CIIS faculty and creativity researcher Alfonso Monturi explores the future of creativity. This talk was recorded on February 15, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you. Thank you. God save the queen in a fascist regime. There's no future in England's dreaming. That's what I heard when I was 16 years old and living in London. Um, and it was pretty much 40 years ago. It was 1977 when the Sex Pistols had their breakthrough. And uh, love, peace, and understanding was officially, were officially buried in the process, right? Um, and uh, it's somewhat ironic that uh, 40 years later, um, these words should still haunt me and should still have considerable relevance. Um, they certainly led me to think about the relationship between creativity and the future, um, or the lack of a future. Uh, certainly, uh, as somebody who, who teaches at a university, I talk to a lot of young people, and it's always very distressing for me when I find that they have a lot of trouble talking about the future, and that talking about the future has more to do with survival um, than is the future going to be better. Clearly, I'm not the youngest, but I did grow up in an era when the assumption was that things were going to get better. That is lost somehow these days. I don't think many people are assuming that things are going to get better. So what I'd like to talk about is the relationship between creativity and the future, because despite everything, I'm an inveterate optimist, and when I look at all these beautiful faces, I become even more optimistic, because I know that when people come together with a mission, a lot can be accomplished. So, if we're going to talk about creativity, we should talk about these notes. I typically play this little game, my wife laughed, of course, because she knows that I play this little game with myself, that when I go to give a talk, I write all these notes, I get sort of feverish like a day before, I do these outlines, I cross things out, and then when I actually get to the talk, the notes have mysteriously disappeared. I can't find them, uh, they're gone, something or other. Now I have them and I'm look at, looking at them and having uh, what is technically known as an oh shit moment. Like, am I really supposed to follow this outline? So this is actually one of the tensions of creativity, right? It's between structure and freedom. Am I gonna get totally structured and boxed in by these notes that I've taken or Am I just gonna fly like an eagle? And 
at the same time miss a couple of or more of the key points that I want to make. I want to talk about creativity because creativity is, is, a, is a very interesting topic. Uh, very often, uh, it's happened to me that I've been asked to, uh, somebody calls me to consult for an organization, and they say, well, you know, the organization desperately needs to be more creative. But whatever you do, don't use the word creativity which I always thought was really interesting, right? Because there's still this association of creativity with something weird and sort of wacky and something that doesn't fit in the box when you're desperately trying to get out of the box. So there are some issues involved there. And one of the things that I was always interested in was sort of the mythology around creativity and also how, how disempowering it, it was in many ways. But in terms of creativity in the future, I want to think about creativity not just as bringing something new into existence. Uh, the typical definition of creativity is, you know, the ability to bring something new and useful uh, uh, into existence, which of course raises questions about useful for whom. Um, but um, Creativity is also about how we see the world. It's not just necessarily what we create and put out there in the world. Particularly relevant now, you know, we were saying earlier that this talk was arranged before uh, the fateful events of November. And so the question of the future has perhaps become even more pressing. I, I'd like to think of this in the context of a larger transition. When I first came to the US in, in 1983, escaping London, uh, my band had broken up, um, the food wasn't getting any better, and uh, the weather wasn't getting any better either. I, I thought I'd come to sunny California and um, got off the plane, got into a cab. The cab driver said, you're from London. You love the fog. <laughs> Not what I was expecting. I came here to study international relations and read a book by a sociologist by the name of Daniel Bell called The Coming Post-Industrial Society. That was from my master's degree. When I was taking my PhD, it was postmodern all of a sudden, right? Post-industrial had kind of fallen by the wayside. Now we're to talking about postmodern. So postmodern wasn't just about the fact that the economy was going to change, but everything was going to change. Now you could put a mustache on the Mona Lisa and be cool. Uh, post, you know, MTV had a postmodern hour. Everything was bricolage, putting things together, and uh, you know, there was it was it was interesting. Uh, then now. You know, the word that's, that's making the rounds is post-normal, right? Nothing is normal anymore, right? Everything is weird. Zia Sardar, uh, English uh, a futurist, uh, Pakistani origin, coined the word post-normal in, in this context. Uh, and I think it certainly seems to resonate with people, right? Things are, are not normal. Then, of course, there's the Anthropocene. Right, suggesting that we are now the biggest troublemakers on the planet. Right, it's it's getting to the point where anthropos, human beings, we are the ones that are having the biggest impact and could also potentially destroy the planet. Um, so how do we how do we make sense of all that? There there is an enormous complexity in the world now. We've gotten enormously interdependent. Everybody can see that, right? I mean, when I moved when I moved to the U.S. I, I called 
my mom and dad, I was on the phone for 20 minutes, and it cost me 150 bucks, and that's $1983, right? So that was substantial. Now you can Skype, right? And it's free, and it's all changed very dramatically. That's just a small example. Um, there are, there are tremendous changes. I had, a, I had a little address book. All my friends' names were in there. And um, if I had lost that address book, lost touch with all my friends. This clearly doesn't happen anymore, and now I'm in touch with friends from primary school, and it's possible to be in touch with people you don't want to be in touch with from your past, right? So it's, the situation is very different. These are, these are personal examples, but obviously the world is getting tremendously interdependent, interconnected, and what we know from systems and complexity theory is that the more open, the more interdependent, the more complex the system become, the more disequilibrium there is, the more small causes can have big effects. In other words, things get weird really fast. Um, they get unpredictable and they get uncertain. Um, and, um, and so what happens is that the world is more interdependent and it's therefore more unstable. One of the interesting things, of course, is that everything being more interdependent and connected can be a wonderful thing, right? I mean, Joanna Macy, the great Buddhist scholar and activist, talks about you know, the role of dependent co-arising and seeing the world as interconnected as a fundamental part of Buddhism, right? Of Buddhist enlightenment. Fantastic. Uh, seeing everything as interconnected um, is also what paranoia is about. It's all interconnected and it's all out to get me. Right? And so one of the things that's happening now is that we're seeing, have you noticed that conspiracy theories now are just everywhere? And, and, and you can get an answer from a normal, quote, normal person, if there is still such a thing, that is in fact a conspiracy theory. Right? And neuroscientist Michael Gazzaniga calls, calls the left hemisphere in the brain the interpreter and, and claims that human beings have a, an obsession with knowing what's going on, right? We must interpret everything. And so when, as another technical term from academia, when shit is weird, we have a tendency to wanna have some kind of map, some kind of framework that gives us an answer that explains what's going on. And I think in this time of tremendous uncertainty, we are really struggling to make sense of it. And it's also a natural tendency that human beings have to want to superimpose some kind of framework to make sense of it. I came to the US um, leaving England behind because apart from the, the weather, which was uh, not necessarily what I preferred. There was also a phenomenon that some of you may have heard about. At that time, there was a resurgence of nativism, uh, and basically there were what they called race riots, and uh, the British movement and the National Front were explicitly racist parties um, that would go around uh, beating people of color up, and uh, it was not, not a good situation. Not my favorite. I, I was not an English citizen uh, at the time, I, uh, as still today. Uh, I had an Italian passport. 
this is not my country. These are, these are not my people. Let's go to sunny California. But one of the things that I wanted to understand in sunny California when I came here to study was I wanted to understand racism and prejudice and authoritarianism and what is this need to control and to create hierarchies of who's the better superior race and who isn't, and, and authoritarianism as this need to control other people. I bumped into a fantastic book uh, written after World War II to try to understand what happened uh, in Germany. Germany was always thought of as the most civilized country in Europe. How do you go from Goethe and Beethoven and end up with Auschwitz and Dachau. How is that possible? And so people wanted to understand how these, these, how could something like this happen in, in Europe and how could it happen in Germany? And, and so there was this fantastic research done on the psychology of authoritarianism. This book called The Authoritarian Personality had a big impact on me. It outlined all the characteristics of authoritarianism. Purely, well, almost purely, uh, should I talk about something? No, just kidding. Um, uh, just purely by accident, I, I was interested at the time in the work of Timothy Leary. How many people have heard of Timothy Leary? Yes, there you go. Timothy Leary. Anyway, um, I was interested in Timothy Leary, and I actually went to meet a man who uh, was uh, apparently... A friend of his, I'd heard and knew about his work, and had also been invited to be the head of psychological research um, at the CIA, which I thought was very interesting, right? Because I was interested in, well, I was doing, I was writing a paper for my master's degree on the CIA, the, the CIA mindset and all this sort of thing. I got to know him, seemed to be an interesting guy, didn't really tell me anything I wanted to know about the CIA, which I suppose is kind of natural. People don't, even if they're not in the CIA, they ain't gonna tell you a lot, right? Then I bought one of his books and it contained a description of the creative person. And if you put the description of the creative person side by side with a description of the authoritarian person, you see that they're the exact opposite, right? So authoritarian people tend to think in terms of black and white, they think in terms of either or, they think in terms of hierarchies, who's on top, who's on the bottom. Uh, they, one of the um, key traits is that they are very sensitive to situational pressures, right? So situa when situational pressures mount, these people look for somebody who says, I can take care of you, right? They look for, they look for a leader. One of the other very interesting characteristics of authoritarian individuals is that they have very clear uh, and polarized gender roles. Men are men to the extent that they don't do anything remotely associated with women, right? And women are women to the extent that they don't do anything that's associated with men. Now, you can probably see what the implications are there. Interestingly enough, creative people obviously were very, very different. They had a preference for things that are complex, for things that are ambiguous, right? That, that didn't disturb them in any way. On the contrary, they saw that as an opportunity, right? As an opportunity to explore, to create. 
And one of the very interesting, other interesting characteristics is that they did not conform to traditional gender stereotypes, right? So they didn't feel the need to, men didn't feel the need to behave in particularly masculine ways. They, the men allowed themselves to feel certain things that you know, weren't part of the traditional uh, view of what a man is supposed to be like. And it, women were more assertive and didn't conform to the traditional stereotypes. Now, the very interesting thing is that this is sort of a fractal thing, because you can take these basic characteristics at the person level, and you can see how they translate to social system. What's one of the first things that happens in authoritarian social systems is that women are given a certain kind of role, which you could argue women are put in their place, right? And, and so we know, we know, we see, we see that everywhere. You see that, you know, in authoritarian uh, societies in the Middle East, and you see it over here. Wherever you go, it's the same thing. Right? And so my friend Rian Eisler has written uh, some very interesting books on that subject, uh, looking at social change through the lens of gender, because just that one particular uh, uh, dimension accounts for a lot. And so how can we, how can we, uh, so I, when, I, when I started seeing that, my question became, how can we educate, how can we cultivate, how can we develop this spirit of creativity, not creativity exclusively in the arts or the sciences, but creativity as a way of being in the world, right? Um, that is open to difference, that when encountering somebody else is not, okay, uh, who's on top here, who's, but is more of the attitude of, of a musician. Oh, that's your musical background. Let's play and find out what's happening. Let's jam and hear what it sounds like, right? which to me seems like a far more civilized approach than trying to figure out who's on top, right? But, hey. So, I always felt that creativity was, uh, you know, often framed in a way that was too limited. A couple of other th interesting things happened when I got here. Um, I'd grown up playing in a band, right? Grown up playing in a band, and I thought, well, you know, first my interest was authoritarianism, but then I thought, well, let me look. What does the research literature have to say about creative groups? Nothing. There was nothing about creative groups. I wrote about it, and it was a creative groups? That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a creative group, right? People thought, well, committees. That's, oh, committees are never creative, you know? I thought, well, well I don't know. I've played in bands. Bands are creative. You ever, like, been to a theater? And, uh, but, but, so this made me very aware not only of the blind spots that we can have in academia, but also that we can have societally, right? Huge, these huge blind spots that made us think, well, creativity is only about an individual. You know, only an individual can be creative. There are no creative relationships. There are no creative groups. No efforts to, uh, efforts to support, create, to generate creative environments. None of that, none of that. It, because as, as you saw in the movies, if you're talented, you'll make it right. Which, as we know, is, is a little problematic, right? It's not exactly the way it works. Um, and so, so there were a lot of disempowering myths about creativity. Um, you know, anybody who's, who's played in a band, who's 
worked in a theater production who's worked somewhere where creative work needs to be done knows that there can be relationships that are really generative, that spark creativity. You can have discussions. You know, there are some people that you, you, you dialogue with and it's kind of like, oh, oh okay, huh, is that the time? And, and there are other people that you just can't wait to see again and talk with and get into it. And, you know, there are, so all of that was left out. Another thing that I thought was very interesting uh, that was a, a byproduct of this, see, because if you think that, the, that, that nothing matters and the genius will come through no matter what, then at the time you could look at all the lists of creative geniuses and say, well, of course, they're all white men. And, and Hans Eysenck, very well-known, very famous British psychologist, in 1995 with his bare face hanging out could still say... All of the creative geniuses have been men for some reason, right? And so for him, it was like, well, you know, I'm not going to rub it in here. But men are creative and, base, and women, women have babies. That's how, that's how you contribute to the world, by, by making babies. Women are not creative. And so, the, so out of this, out of this uh, uh, mythology came a lot of uh, very, very uh, uh, disempowering and very wrong ideas about creativity. So, of course, with my youthful hubris, I decided to say, oh, deconstructing the lone genius. I learned that word, deconstructing. At the, hey, it was 1990, you know, it was still fresh, right? Now, you know, people are deconstructing everything. Um, and, and, and in fact, people said, well, you're, somebody actually accused me of being a communist, right? Because, well, it's not the, lone, it's not the lone genius, then you're a collectivist. God forbid, right? You're a collectivist. And somebody wrote that, you know, he wants to study groups and women. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Right, as if that's a problem, but uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, so I became very interested in how, how our understanding of creativity is shaped by a variety of assumptions and how we can bring creativity into the world in a different kind of way. Now, oddly enough, as I, as I, um, as I got a little older... Um, I, was, I was invited to be, uh, this, this was a great gig, great If you know anybody who wants to give me this kind of a gig again, Miami University, I, when I first got the email, I thought it was like Florida, but it's actually in Ohio, but it's a lovely campus. Um, and so they invited me to come over for a year and just hang out and talk about creativity and great, didn't have to teach, beautiful, talk to the kids, talk to the children, and they were children. I mean, for me, I've only ever taught graduate students, right? It's like 18-year-olds. And the amazing thing is I would go into all these classes and I would, I would say, well, so, so tell me about people that you think are creative. And these were students in the fine arts department, and to their instructor's horror, none of them would mention artists. Right? None of them would mention artists, so they were, they, they were I could see the, the instructors blanching, you know, and, like, and they would talk about their friends and their parents, which I think clearly differentiates them from the baby boomers, because I don't think uh, the baby boomers would ever have mentioned their parents if asked to uh, identify the most creative people that they know. And so I saw that there was this very interesting shift happening where creativity for the new generation was a lot more relational, 
Uh, and after a while, I started calling it everyday, everyone, everywhere creativity, in the sense that creativity was not about, you know, before creativity was about the genius, right, or Leonardo or whatever, right? And, and it came through like some big flash, you know, like the ones that we see in the cartoons, the light bulb goes on over the head. Nope. For them, it was sort of this longer process where everybody works together and does cool things. Great. I, I started seeing that this social view of creativity was becoming uh, much more acceptable. And I think this has something to do also with the fact that we're living now in a networked society. I mean, whereas, you know, the older generations were still very much focused on the individual, if you've grown up not needing the little address book, but knowing that you can stay in touch with all your friends through Facebook or whatever you use, you are living in a much more interconnected world. If it doesn't cost an arm and a leg to call some other country, although I must say I was really happy that we didn't have cell phones when I was a kid, so my parents could never call me. But they, the kids today live in a... Kids, I mean, you know, today, growing up recently, uh, is a whole different proposition. And you see some really drastic differences. One of the ways that, that I kind of used to, to give a sense of these di differences is by comparing, say, an iconic event like Woodstock with Burning Man. Woodstock is hundreds of thousands of kids rolling in the mud to see their stars up there, right? Burning Man or similar events are events where there is no Santana. By the way, did you hear what he said about Beyonce? Um, there is no big star out there. Everybody, everybody is a star, right? Everybody's a star and everybody works together to create something they like, something cool, something. But there is no separation between, you know, the artists up there and uh, uh, the audience. It's a different world. Now, things may be changing even at Burning Man, and, and we'll probably need to talk about how this whole sort of democratization of creativity in the same way, you know, we have the same phenomenon in leadership, right? In, you know, leadership, if you looked at leadership, the way people talked about leadership for thousands of years, it was always the great man, right? Great man theory. And um, now that if you browse through the leadership, and I'll give a plug here for our masters in leadership at CIS. I'm on the faculty. Um, if you look at the, at the leadership literature, it's all about distributed leadership, emergent leadership, people working together, people not micromanaging. This is just, you know, the great man is dead, more women are leaders, people of color are leaders. It's just a different world, um, right? Only I can fix this mess. So at the same time, there is also clearly a backlash happening to these changes, right? Uh, so there are, there are changes happening. There is a move towards this more democratic, more distributed view of the world. Um, and at the same time, there's, there's a, a, a serious backlash. Um, what, what I want to argue is that I think on a, we've you know, reached this post-normal era and one of the things that's going on is we're sort of, we sort of know where we came from and we're trying to figure out where we're going, but we have no idea where we're going. 
right? We have no real idea where we're going from here. And that's, that's one of the problems. That's one of the problems. So in that sense, we're having kind of a, an identity crisis in the U.S., right? I mean, think about it. When I first came to the U.S., I saw a map made by the CIA, and half of the world was black, the rest of the world was white, and you had these little gray blobs that were the non-aligned countries like India, and they didn't matter. And it was a bipolar world, and we were the leaders of the free world. Well, globally, that's just not happening anymore, right? China, India came out of nowhere. Russia is acting real weird. Uh, and, you know, you have asymmetrical warfare. You have terrorists. You can't bomb a terrorist country. They, you know, the, the bombers live all over the place. There's no country to invade. It's not as easy as that unless you want to have another Iraq or Afghanistan, right? Uh, industry is changing, right? We're all seeing that. I mean, we are here in the center of disruption, right? You know, you have, you have Facebook, you have Uber, very different kinds of models. You know, you're really not going to go back to Rust Belt type industries. You're not going to go back to mining. Uh, you know, that's just not going to happen anymore, you know? Um, and there are some other very interesting things happening. Um, women are now starting to be the breadwinners in a lot of families. Um, and um, they, uh, they're also starting to be more educated than men. So one of the big things that's happening is that men are having a really serious identity crisis. Like, look, let's face it, we've been having an identity crisis for a long time now. Why the hell are we wearing our baseball caps backwards and wearing shorts in the city. You know, what is that? I don't know. I was, but anyway, um, no, but I mean, seriously, it's, there is, you know, it's sort of the Adam Sandlerization of the world, right? So there is, there is some, some weird, uh, th there are some really serious issues there that men have to deal with because, you know, our identity was for such a long time defined in a very clear way, and it just ain't happening anymore, and, and women are not going for it either, right? Um, also, you know, it's what Foley calls the browning of America. You know, demographics are changing drastically. You know, I mean, there, in, in, some, in some states, white people are... are becoming a minority. That's very strange. When I first got here, I read this book called American Cultural Patterns, and it was sort of the standard texts about the psychology and culture of America. Yeah, there was not a person of color to be found, right? It was, it was strictly a description of, you know, this is, this is what white people in America are about, and this is what America is, right? So things have changed very, very dramatically. With all that, there are clearly people who find this very difficult, and, and one of the reasons I want to argue very strongly is because there is no vision of where do we go from here. You know, I think one of the key problems is that we don't have a strong vision of what does a green, diverse, thriving America look like. You know, and, and that's where I think where creativity comes in. I want to, now I will actually read you some things. Because um, as we age, isn't that favorite thing your doctor says, as we age? So um, this is from a Harris poll. Um, so 
who are who are our heroes in the movies, right? 1996. All right, the most popular movie stars in the U.S. came as a shock to me. Number one, John Wayne. 1996, right? Okay. Uh, number two, Clint Eastwood. Number three, that ever popular Mel Gibson. Uh, Mel Gibson is no longer on this list, right? Mel Gibson is no longer on the list. 2016, this is interesting. Number one, Tom Hanks, right? Now, when you, when you think back about the lone genius and the myth of the individual and all that sort of thing, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Mel Gibson, hello. What's the next line? I always want to go into the Lionel Richie song, but no, that's Lionel Richie. There's Lionel Richie, there's Adele. I'll take Lionel Richie. Um, right, so 2016, number one, Tom Hanks. Number two, wait for it, Johnny Depp. All right, this is very different. This is very different, you know. We're dealing with a, a you know, let's face it, kind of androgynous, slightly androgynous figure, definitely not your John Wayne, right? Uh, number three, Denzel Washington, right? Number four, John Wayne. I don't know. Yes, it's John Wayne. And, and <laughs> you know, I'm only half joking here, but that goes to show what kind of a transitional weirdness we're in right now. Like, because there are some of us, have you ever seen a John Wayne movie? I rest my case, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Never seen a John Wayne movie. It's actually the f one of the, I think maybe the first movie I ever saw, and I felt old just watching it when I was like 13 or something, you know? No, actually, the first movie I saw on my own, because the first movie I saw was Mary Poppins, Julie Andrews. Uh, yeah, my, my, well, I have to say now, my four, my four ideal women when I was eight years old, of course, Julie Andrews, Diana Rigg. Diana Rigg and the Avengers. Who does not love Diana Rigg in the Avengers, right? Elizabeth Montgomery in Bewitched, you know? And Diane Carroll in Julia, right? Remember Julia? Right, anyway, sorry. I just have to mention my favorite women as an eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, as you get older, you start regressing slowly. And um, so one of the other interesting... Uh, uh, phenomena here is that um, this plays out generationally. Um, the millennials, Johnny Depp. Gen X, Harrison Ford. Star Wars, right? Gotta be. Boomers, Tom Hanks. Probably Beethoven, you know, that big slobbering dog. And that. 70 plus, John Wayne, right? <laughs> Still stuck. At, yeah, you should watch one of those movies. It's just, you know, for like... America. Um, but one of the things that I thought most interesting is that they broke it down by, by regions, right? Guess who is the most popular in the American South and in rural areas? Johnny Depp. So we're weird, let's face it. We're a weird country. And, and we, we have, you know, one foot in the Old West and one foot in, in the New West or, you know, something else. 
right? But there's, there's weirdness, and there's no wonder this kind of weirdness shows up in the polls as well, right? Um, and um, at the same time, 68% of Americans feel that we are on the wrong track. And that's very recent. Um, and we've been feeling that we're on the wrong track for a long time. Um, and so what, what, I wanna, what I wanna suggest here, if I actually can figure out what I am saying, is that one of the things that, that we're lacking at this point, as I said earlier, is any real visions of what the future could look like. Um, not to get too nostalgic, although I have to say nostalgia is a big theme now. You'll notice how many 90s and 80s parties there are, how people listen to, there's a great book by Simon Reynolds called Retromania. In this book, he talks about how people uh, organize entire concerts that replicate important gigs from the 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s, right? How people listen to music from other eras, how clothes, how music, how everything gets recycled even from five years ago. We live in an age of tremendous nostalgia, right? Um, on the other hand, I think we also have sort of a nostalgia for the future, right? Um, wh where did our future go? You know, dude, where's my future? Where is it? Um, you know, when, uh, I, I love these, these old books for, that have images of the future from like the beginning of the 20th century or the 20s or the 30s. And you can see what people imagine. And, and it's, it's both charming and chilling, right? Because you have, you know, people sort of flying around Paris and, you know, sitting in classrooms with electrodes on their heads and things like that. And then all of a sudden you start looking for what's missing and you see that there's absolutely no nature anywhere to be found. It's all technology and there are no people of color anywhere, right? And then you think, well, is this really the kind of future that I would want to live in? And if this was our image of the future... Ah, that's a little creepy, right? And, and we know that the past shapes the future uh, and, and our present, right? Does the future shape the present, right? Does, does our view of the future shape who we are today? No, I think if we all thought that we had individually won the lottery right now, you could actually measure physiological changes in each one of us, right? Uh, you know, if we all thought, hey, you just won $100 million, eh, maybe our hearts would beat just a little faster. But at the same time, if we think the world is going to hell in a handbasket, how is that going to make us feel? How is that going to make us act? When, when I was young, there were movies where aliens would come to Earth attack us, eat us, do all these horrible things to us, right? It came from outer space, the monster from the Black Lagoon, and, and the invasion of the body snatchers, right? Who remembers the outer limits, Twilight Zone, you know, it's great stuff, right? right? And the aliens were out to get us, goddammit. Now, best-selling science fiction movie is Avatar in 3D, which kind of made me sick, sort of. I had this kind of... 
oh, a little nauseous. But um, one of the interesting things about Avatar is that we are the bad guys in, Ava in Avatar. We are the ones who go to the nice planet with the lovely blue aliens who live in this idyllic harmony with nature. And we go and destroy them. We go there to kill them. And in the end, the one good human becomes one of them. He turns blue, right, at the end of the movie. What kind of a future is that? What does that say about how we think of ourselves right now, if that's the best selling movie, if that's the image that we have of ourselves? So one of the things that, that I think is vitally important is to start talking about what kind of future do we want to see? Let's take this seriously for a minute. What would make America great? What do you think would make America great? What would it look like? What would it feel like? What would it sound like for you to walk around in a country that you thought was great? What would it mean for you to be great? At CIS, we spend a lot of time looking at this sort of thing. You know, what, what possibilities do human beings have? What capacities do we have? What can we become, you know? And what can we become as a nation, too? As, and as a, as, as a planet. Who knows if there are gonna be nations much longer. Many people say that there will not be nations. But regardless, what would it mean to, to live in a world that you think is great? Not utopian, because remember, there used to be a lot of talk about utopias, and suddenly then things started going south. And now it's all dystopias. You look at any of the literature, it's all dystopian. You look at any of the future fiction, it's all dystopian. It's all Blade Runner. It's all haves and have-nots. It's, you know, and, and so... I believe it's all, you know, and one of the interesting things is when I, when I tell people that I think one of the things we need to do is, is to encourage people to write about better futures, they say, well, wouldn't that be terribly boring? Well, you know, if we live in a better future, people still fall in love and get rejected. You know, all sorts of, all sorts of bad stuff can still happen to you, you know? Really, that's not going to be the issue to make things exciting. Trust me, you know? That's really not going to be the problem, you know? But we're really struggling because, see, I think the Mayans were right. I think 2012 was the end of the world, right? Actually, not 2012, is 2008, be more precise. You know, we all have our little calendar thing that we do. But it was a wall for the imagination. All the science fiction shows that I used to watch as a kid, see, people think this is funny, but I don't know. The science fiction shows that I used to watch as a kid, Lost in Space, 1998. Uh, space 1999, right? UFO was supposed to happen in 1983, and that was the distant future then, right? Then you had 2001, A Space Odyssey. 2010, A Space Odyssey. Back to the future. Their future is our past, right? What does that mean? It means we're really old. <sighs> no, 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 no. But it, it does mean, I think, that we've hit kind of a wall of the show. Of course, we've got, we've got Star Trek, which is immortal and will live forever in the year 3000. You know, of course, Captain, maybe I insulted them, I don't know. Um, but, you know, bye. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, you begin to wonder, well, where, where, is, where is some kind of better future?
You know, I, I, can we even think about the future? One of the things that I think is, is, is heartbreaking to me is when I want to talk with young people about the future and they can't do it. They don't want to talk about the future. And one of the phenomena that's quite common is people think, people say, it's actually a book, I, I ordered it. I ordered too many books, um, but it's, I have it, I'll put it away. Um, and, and basically the argument is people think, I, I think I'll be okay, but I think the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And, and that's, that's a very sad story. So what I want to do, as some of you here know, actually my goal is this year to start a center to look at the relationship between creativity and the future and how we can infuse our thinking about the future and our thinking about some of the most difficult issues uh, uh, with a solid dose of creativity. Um, having grown up a mutt, I'm half Italian, I'm half Dutch, I never lived in the country that I issued my passport, which was Italy, and until my wife insisted that under the second bush I should get a U.S. passport. Very good idea. I can't live without her. Um, you know, I, I was still uh, an Italian citizen. Um, and as a musician, you hear, what you hear, the greatness that you hear in music is the result of diversity, right? If you're, if you're listening to popular music, if you're listening to jazz, if you're listening to any kind of music, what you hear is, is diversity, right? And so it always breaks my heart when I hear people talk about diversity only as a problem. Racism is a problem. Oppression is a problem. Cultural appropriation is a problem. Diversity is not a problem. Diversity is actually what brought the greatest gifts to humanity, you know, that's why, that's why things are good, you know, and it can be from everything from food to what people look like, you know. Um, and, but at the same time, when we ask people about that, when we ask people about diversity, that's not where their mind goes. We think of all sorts of clashes, we think of things that are not good, and of course these are things that we need to eliminate, but we will not be able to eliminate unless we know where to go. Research um, in 2011 showed that a high number of white people in the U.S. think that to the extent that things get better for black people in the U.S., things will, by definition, get worse for white people, right? And so, so that's, the kind, that's the kind of logic that, that I think we need to address, and we need to show uh, how diversity has brought people together, even in the hardest circumstances. It's not, it's not Pollyanna. I mean, I think of the creation of jazz with the intersection of so many different people from so many different groups. It wasn't easy. They suffered. All of them suffered. But at the same time, it was a victory of the human spirit that created one of the greatest art forms. And, and and, and brought people together. How many of you, there's this amazing documentary called Muscle Shoals. How many of you have seen it? If you get a chance to see it, see Muscle Shoals. It's about a recording studio in Alabama where uh, Aretha and a number of great artists uh, recorded some of their biggest hits. And I won't give it away, but it's the most amazing endorsement for the creative for the generativity of diversity that you could find. You know, it's, it's really phenomenal. And what I want to argue, you know, is that it's not just, we don't need huge effects, huge causes to create big effects. 
You know, when we look around the world, we can also look at small events. Now people are hip to microaggressions, but there are also lots of micro-connections and micro-creations that we, that we make and that we see all the time. And if it's possible with two people, if it's possible in an interaction that, that you have, that a man and a woman have, that people of different backgrounds have, it's possible, we can do it. We, it doesn't need to be some huge thing. We can look at these small events and see how they can lead to bigger changes. Where do we go from here? Yes, well, <laughs> well um, actually, I think it's called, quite appropriately, given the fake news, it's called the forgery, and it's just, if you go down that way, on the next block, it's the bar, so we'll all meet you there. Um, but just to, just to round things up, um, I think, I think what we need to do now is mobilize creativity and mobilize grassroots creativity as well, you know? I, I, think, I think there is an enormous creativity that's latent in young people, even in old folks like me, you know? And, and I think people can come together and begin to think about, well, what would a great future look like for you? What would a great San Francisco look like for you? What would, you know, because it's ultimately not a bad question. It has nothing to do with going back to the past. But what does the future look like? And can we think and act in such a way as, first of all, to embody that future now? If I want the future to be a certain kind of way, then the best thing I can do is say, okay, well, I'm going to start acting that way right now. But I can also come together with other people and say, let's think this through. What would you like to see? What would, what would be significant? What would be meaningful? What would be exciting for you? I want to hear from kids. I want to hear what, what kind of a world do they want to live in? What means something to them? So that's what we're planning to do. And I hope you'll join us and vote for me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast. <laughs>